0: Good morning, welcome back everybody to another episode of For Pod's Sake with Sean Callahan and I want to talk about one thing today, drugs, that's it, I don't have any to offer, I'm not taking any, so sorry, I can't help you out. But there's actually a lot of news, a lot of movement about the war on drugs or as we should call it instead of the drug war, the emerging drug peace, because finally around the world in small bits and pieces, the war on drugs is is starting to implode. It's starting to crumble. It's starting to be unwound and people are waking up. Waking up to the fact that this has been a senseless, stupid, useless, destructive war on uh, on drug use by human beings. Now, I touched on this topic slightly in an earlier episode, and uh, I was afraid because it started raining that all of the recording was going to be was going to be terrible. But it turns out that uh, it didn't really come through. So, like the U.S. Postal Service, come rain, sleet, snow. Hurricane, tornado, I will continue to keep podcasting, so you keep listening. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the topics that came up with discussing the war on drugs. And there's a lot of news that's been coming out, some good, some not so good. But it's all wrapped up into one central idea. And one of the, just to get it out of the way, some of the bad news with regards to drug use and uh, the war on drugs... Is that reported in the Washington Post? Drug overdose, overdoses—excuse me—in the United States soared to a record 93,000 last year. During the pandemic, 93,000 Americans overdosed and died, and it's horrible. Drug addiction is horrible, and these people are leaving behind loved ones and. You know, uh, the the first time that really drug addiction really uh, well it touched my life my life personally because my cousin was a struggling drug addict for many many years and she's you know still in recovery and has gotten her life back together. But for many years it was a horrible uh, situation for our family and uh, especially for my aunt and uncle. But it really also hit home when a friend of mine growing up and who is basically one of my best friend's cousins, a guy I knew from the neighborhood, he overdosed and died at 30 years old. And having to go to a, a wake and see someone that you know, someone who you used to smoke weed with, actually, and had many, many laughs and many memories, and to see them in a coffin when they're 30, um, it's it's not... It's a, it's a very tough thing to deal with. So, um, you know, I... I I can say I'm not uh, necessarily a pro-drug person, Um, I think, but I think I do look at this in a more pragmatic way than a lot of lawmakers, and the thing is, a lot of these drug overdoses are, are happening because of that synthetic opioid, fentanyl, and fentanyl is about, I think, something like 50 times more powerful than heroin, which is crazy why something like that even exists on planet earth is beyond me i don't i don't know but again the reason why people are overdosing is that drug dealers are cutting their drugs with fentanyl to give it a more powerful punch and it's cheaper and it's a way for them to make more money and again this is because drugs are illegal so the conservative argument on this is that see look at this 93,000 people died because of overdoses we need to be harder on the war on drugs we need to have more police more DEA agents we need to have stricter punishments. send people to jail for longer to deter them and it's a bullshit argument and I don't know when conservatives will wake up to this or, or people who don't pay attention this approach does not work with drugs. All it does is incarcerate, disproportionately in America, black and brown people. And all it does is put money in the hands of drug dealers and people who are going to cut drugs with fentanyl. And people are going to get killed because they don't know what they're getting. So there needs to be a new approach to this. And this new approach is happening. It's happening around the world. It's happening in the United States. People are starting to realize that you know what? We have to live with these substances. We've been fighting a drug war for over 50 years. It hasn't worked. It hasn't decreased the amount of drug use, hasn't made anybody safer. All it's done is put a lot of people in jail, ripped a lot of people apart, and it's created a lot of uh, revenue for criminal organizations. So Michael Pollan, the author, has a new book that's just come out. And if you haven't checked it out already, he was a, a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's out there, obviously, promoting promoting the new book called This Is Your... I think it's um, Your Mind on Plants. And his previous book, How to Change Your Mind, uh, talked about the history of and use and implementation of psychedelics. An amazing book. I can't recommend it enough. And he's got a new book out which talks about some other drugs like mescaline, talks about opium, and he talks about caffeine and it brings to mind the fact that we as human beings in in society in the year 2021 a lot of us are drug users even if we don't think we are we'll use prescription pills for things pain medication i myself have a coffee every morning at 4:30 in the morning and if i don't i will have a shocking headache and i probably have 3 4 sometimes 5 in a day it's the only way i've been able to survive having twins and having four children under the age of nine is caffeine. I'm a drug addict. I'm a caffeine addict. I admit it. But it isn't destructive to me. It's something that I live with. So I use a drug to better enhance my life experience. And the vast majority of people do the same thing. So this is what we need to think about. If these people are dying because they're overdosing, we need to analyze and and look at the broader picture. Why are people using these hard drugs in the United States? Why are they overdosing? And it's not just that it's a chemical substance, it's that people are bonding with these substances, and they're using them to, to heal something, or not heal something, but to treat some sort of problem. And this is, this is a sort of new way of thinking with, with drugs. Originally, or when I was coming up, the new language around drug use and drug addiction was that, you know, drug drug addiction was a disease, and that's what it really came out to try and stop stigmatizing people who were drug users or drug addicts and say, oh no no they have a disease they have a disease they can't help themselves, and I have to admit it never really sat well with me, and I quietly was like, I think that's bullshit, and that was my own opinion, but I couldn't share it because then I was seen as a callous. Or uh, unsympathetic, but I always thought because I've dabbled, I've tried several different drugs, and I never got addicted. So I said, I think it's part of it is as, as a personal choice. But what I didn't take into account was uh, a, a more a deeper view of the subject. And Michael Pollan discusses this in, in an article he does he does an op-ed in the New York Times, but it's it's well known, and he brings up. The Rat Park study. So now, if you're unaware, most of our upbringing, we were taught that certain drugs are just so addictive, they're so crazy that if you try them once, you'll become a full-blown addict. And this is the scare tactic that was pumped into us with propaganda and say no to drugs, commercials, and, and teaching in school, and it's what I brought up believing. I brought up believing that if you try cocaine, heroin, meth, any of these hard drugs, one hit... And you're fucked. Either one hit and you're going to drop dead because it's so powerful. Or one hit and next minute you're going to be in an alleyway, you know, sucking somebody off. Or, uh, or, or you know, rolling around on, on the ground in your own shit and vomit because you can't control yourself. And that's what I was deathly afraid of. Any sort of uh, hard drug. And I never touched anything. And all I did was in high school and college was... Uh, smoke weed and drink beers, and that was pretty much my favorite combo. And I'd probably say even to this day that would be my preferred um, substance to, to alter my my consciousness is have a bit of wine, have a bit of beer, smoke a joint. I think it's a great combo. Um, but I never I was deathly afraid of any hard drug for for that reason. And people don't realize that the reason we believe this is is the original study of rats and mice it had to do with uh, a classic rat study where they'd put two you know a rat in a cage and have two different drinking bottles and one was just sort of uh, uh, one was you know, had laced with heroin or cocaine and the other one had sugar water and the rat would go over to the to the drug and it would just go for it and become addicted and it would drop dead right and so that gave us the idea that wow Look, it goes again and again to the to the drug. It can't it can't help itself. It stops and it drops dead. So these substances are so dangerous they have to be illegal. We have to throw anyone who you know who uses them or is caught dealing them or whatever the case is, throw them in jail, lock away you know, lock them up, throw away the key because these are so destructive to society. And that was the status quo. That was the normal way of thinking that certain substances are simply too dangerous that You cannot use them and the thing that changed our perspective on this was what was called the rat park rat park experiment and it was it came up it was devised by a a Canadian psychologist Uh, in the 1970s his name was Bruce Alexander and what they did was they, they tried to emulate this study but they had the one rat in the cage and then as a different idea They created a a rat park. They created a a fun environment for a rat to live in with, you know, tubes and tunnels to run through and other rats to play with or have sex with, toys, all kinds of fun, different things. And what did they find out? They found out that in this enriched environment, and this is quoting a little bit from Michael Pollan's op-ed in the New York Times, that rats will sample the morphine, which was on offer. But they'll consume a small fraction of the amount consumed by the rats living in isolation. In some cases, five milligrams a day instead of 25. And Dr. Alexander came to see that drug abuse isn't a disease. It's an adaptation to one's environment and circumstance, to the condition of one's cage. And that is how we kind of have to rethink about drug abuse And again, some of these drug overdoses in the United States. These drug overdoses, they're not spread evenly across the United States. They're concentrated in certain areas. And the areas they happen to fall in are the exact areas that a lot of times we call the the rust belt in the United States. It's an area of America that used to be heavy into manufacturing with lots of blue collar jobs, a nice middle class living. And as soon as you know, globalization really took hold and factories began to shut and it became cheaper to do things in other countries. These, a lot of these towns became ghost towns. The jobs left, the factories left, and these became economically depressed areas of the United States. And these are the same areas that would, would vote for Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. This is the, the appeal to these people that, wow, we used to have a really good life. And now, we just have rusted beaten down old factories high unemployment uh, obesity all kinds of just an unhealthy life and people become addicted to painkillers a lot of these people worked in construction and other kind of heavy labor jobs they've had they have injuries they get addicted to to oxycontin which is essentially prescription heroin and when they can't get that they switch to heroin and then which is laced with fentanyl and they die so look at this in a different way. These people are bonding with these substances because life around them, their cage is shitty. They're living an isolated life. They're living a depressed life with nothing to do, no purpose. And so they're bonding with substances that give them some sort of relief. But the Rat Park experiment shows that when people's conditions improve, it removes so much of the impetus for for you to use or abuse drugs. And it's a similar thing that I touched on in the previous podcast where I talked about, you know, the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, which happened in Latin America and the Contras and Nicaragua and all kinds of other things. But in Vietnam, when soldiers were using heroin, oftentimes, which was uh, pumped, you know, to them by drug dealers that were actually getting support from the CIA. And again, that's a topic for, for a separate discussion. The interesting thing was, is that about 20% by the end of the war, 20% of soldiers who fought in Vietnam were using heroin. And yet, when they came back to America, they just stopped using. The vast majority, vast, vast majority of soldiers came back. They just went cold turkey and stopped using heroin. Now that should be shocking. Because the way I was brought up, what I had heard was that heroin was so dangerous and so crazy that if you do it one time, you'll become an addict. And so you should never touch it. It's a hardcore painkiller. It'll be, it'll be too much of an experience for you, and you won't be able to, to control yourself. And yet, why didn't when 20% of those soldiers, who were, why, why didn't they come home and keep using heroin if it was that, is that addictive? The same thing that people say, you know, even older people who wound up getting prescription, you know, Oxycontin for hip injuries and, and crazy surgeries. Why aren't there a bunch of 75-year-old junkies out there? How come they can use painkillers for a while and then just stop using them? So we have to rethink how, uh, how we think about these substances. And this idea that if we can change our cage, change our situation, it changes the, the nature of addiction. And it's not necessarily that these people are so under the spell of, uh, of these substances is that they are trying to cover up or deal with some sort of other trauma. And th- that's the real disease. The disease is poverty, is trauma, abuse, things that uh, have affected them so deeply that the symptom becomes drug addiction. So there's certain areas of the country uh, and the world, certain er- places around the world where they're doing this, where they're treating this and looking at drug use and drug abuse in a completely different way. And they're having incredible results, like in Portugal, or the most ambitious is in Switzerland. So instead of taking drug users or abusers and throwing them in prison, you know, they're doing drug treatment instead of incarceration uh, to help them break the habits. They're actually giving people clean needles to use if they are using uh, heroin. And they are... Um, in Switzerland, the government will give you a prescription for heroin, but then they make sure that you have a good job, you have decent housing, and you have therapeutic support. And this is, again, quoting from the Times article, on the theory that you will no longer need the drug after your circumstances improve. So, obviously, we know that Opiates and the abuse of opiates is horrible for, for society. It's destructive. And the same thing in America. Nearly 100,000 people are dying from it. But what if in America they looked at this differently? And these poor, economically depressed areas, what if we could get these people good jobs, good place to live, um, access to, to mental health counseling? It would be an absolute game changer. But instead, we abandon these people. And and so they're bonding with substances to make their shit situation around them a little bit more palatable. And it makes sense completely why these very same people would vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. If you have someone, a con man, but who's promising to give you everything you need, to make your life great again, to give you a job back that went overseas, to to feel like you're being represented, to feel like someone's paying attention to you. That's what he offered these people. And in their their desperate, you know, uh, attempt to, to feel better, they clung to and, and saw uh, and, and felt a, a sort of um, a connection with this this con man because he was telling them everything that they wanted to hear. And so that's the unfortunate thing. And that's why, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, lost basically the, the election is because she called people like this a basket of deplorables and it's one of the things that sank her candidacy, is that these these people are not being paid attention to, and their suffering is not being paid attention to. And so it makes sense why in certain areas of the country they've become addicted to drugs. But it's also, again, why they're, they're dying from them is because these dr- substances aren't legal. So what are some of the measures to unwind the war on drugs? And how do we As Michael Pollan says, how do we fold these substances into our larger society? How do we do it safely so that people don't die and don't become addicted and that people can be treated essentially like adults that can use drugs recreationally or as they see fit to actually enhance their life rather than destroy it? So right now, just in the United States, there's ballot initiatives in five states Uh, And four of them are traditionally sort of red conservative states, but to legalize um, some form of cannabis use. And I just pulled up an article just this morning, again, also in The Post, where uh, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, is trying to bring forth a bill to um, to uh, introduce a measure for federal decriminalization of marijuana. So that means at the, at the federal level, completely across the board. This is the weird thing that the United States has, is that we've got our federal uh, law, which applies to the entire country, and then you've got individual state laws for all 50 states. So certain states have fully legalized marijuana, and yet it's still considered a Schedule One substance at the federal level. So essentially at the federal level, it's, it's illegal. And the way they've gotten around it is that there's just been sort of a memo, and I think it was signed by Barack Obama, that said to the DEA, don't interfere in certain states' rights. So the DEA can go into one state, essentially, and still bust people for marijuana, but they are, were told just simply not to go into, say, California or Washington State or whatever it is and let them do what they want to do. So it's a, a loophole, but really at the federal level... Marijuana is in the same category as heroin, which is insane. So Chuck Schumer, he, uh, he introduced legislation just, just today to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. And the, the draft bill is co-sponsored by uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and Rod Wyden uh, from Oregon. And it would remove federal penalties associated with weed And it would expunge nonviolent federal cannabis-related criminal records and begin regulating and taxing the drug. And this would be incredible because, again, this is removing money, removing power from drug dealers, people who would use violence to, to maintain a monopoly on their drug trade. And it would be tax revenue. For the United States, tax revenue, which could be poured back into social programs and an idea of treating and looking at drug use and abuse in a different way. Money that could be poured back into subsidized housing, job training, uh, education, mental health counseling. What if we could just create a more healthy society where we give people a better cage? to live in. We give them a, a, a rat park rather than an isolated cage. And if we can enhance their quality of life, I think you're going to see rates of drug addiction absolutely plummet. And if people have legal access to marijuana, there's so many things that could be treated with marijuana so that you don't have to use these hardcore prescription pills to begin with. You have something which is a non-lethal drug. That's also um, something that could greatly enhance society. And one of the other bills which is extremely exciting is that but you know by substantial margins Oregon, the state of Oregon in the United States passed two landmark drug reform initiatives. 59% of voters supported measure 110 which decriminalized the possession of small quantities of all drugs, even hard ones like heroin and cocaine. And a second proposal measure 109, specifically legalized psilocybin therapy, directing the state's health department to license growers of so-called magic mushrooms and train facilitators to administer them beginning in 2023. Now, this is the other area of, of drugs that, uh, that I'm extremely passionate about. I believe in the power and use of psychedelics in order to to heal people, to change people's lives. And if you're unfamiliar, you should check out, again, Michael Pollan's uh, other book, How to Change Your Mind. But he, he goes into the whole history of psychedelic use in medicine to treat different conditions. I didn't even realize that. But in the 1950s, doctors were using LSD to treat people with alcoholism. And they were having incredible results. And right now they're using... Um, mdma to treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder and they're having tremendous results in helping veterans coming back from the wars in iraq and afghanistan they are using psychedelics to help people with depression to help end-of-life cancer patients to have no longer have a fear of death and to be able to better live out their days um yeah, unafraid and, and, and unanxious of the fact that they've been giving a, a terminal diagnosis of cancer or some other disease. And this could be the most important revolution in mental health in, in our lifetime, is that we need to sort of throw off the shackles of this sort of propaganda that's that's been stuck in our minds for many, many years, because again... When I was younger, I was deftly afraid of acid and, and all these other things cuz you would hear these stories that if you do this, you, you know, there was always these urban legends. Some kid in the neighborhood took too much acid and now he thinks he's a fucking bird stuck in a coop and he just is walks around the, you know, the neighborhood, and he's completely fucked forever. He's fried, right? There's always that person. Somebody, oh, they looked in a mirror at the bathroom and their face melted and then they had a breakdown and um that was it. And so you'd be so afraid and there'd be stories from that going back to the 1960s of people who jumped out of buildings and everything else. And, to be fair, in the 60s, there probably were a few people who did that. But it's because there was no framework set up for using drugs. And Michael Pollan discusses this a bit at, at length. And I think uh, I have to buy his new book. Admittedly, I haven't gotten it yet. I haven't read it yet. But I'm pretty sure he talks about this is... Is the approach to using drugs needs to to have a, an overarching framework. We need to think about how we do these things. And in the sixties, they didn't have any framework for psychedelics. It was it was fucking the wild west. And so people did a lot of stupid things. People would spike punch bowls at parties with LSD. Like that's insane. I, I would be I'd be terrified if something like that happened. So it was awful and there was a lot of awful experiences just because they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into or what they were doing they unleashed acid and for some people they had these transformative experiences and it changed the culture of the 1960s obviously we know that with woodstock and the vietnam war protests and and social justice movements and everything else however it had such a uh, all those scary stories of people flipping out not knowing they were on acid having a, a crazy episode and and probably jumping off a building that set the tone for, again, the same narrative, these substances are too dangerous, they need to be made illegal, we need to prosecute anybody who uses them, and so on and so forth. But now we're starting to come out of this, uh, this fog of propaganda and realize that in the proper set and setting, and in the proper situations, these psychedelics show so much promise. And an analogy which Pollen uses, because he uh, another researcher gives him this analogy, and it's always stuck with me because it's absolutely true, if you're not familiar, is that our patterns and our way of thinking and our habits are essentially like uh, a ski slope. And the more we do things in our mind, it's like we're skiing down uh, and making tracks in the snow. And we keep repeating these same areas, these same... Uh, tracks. And the more we do that, the more we continue in the same patterns of behavior, the tracks become deeper and deeper and deeper. So that after a while, you can't ski down that mountain without slipping into that track you've already made. And that's how addictions form. That's how negative patterns form and and depression and anxiety and things like that is that your brain becomes almost hardwired to respond to something in a certain way. And what psychedelics does is the psychedelic experience is essentially like a fresh, uh, a fresh snowfall on that on that mountain in your mind, and suddenly you don't have to take that same route. You don't have to look at things in the same way, and it compl- it's like pressing Control Alt Delete and doing a reboot or a refresh of your mind. And so that's how they've been able to have such promise with people in treating alcoholism, depression, other types of addictions, is because those are simply habits that have been so ingrained. And by using a sort of a psychedelic assisted therapy, people are able to confront and overcome and deal with traumas and all kinds of other negative aspects of their life and move forward and think about things in a different way and shake off sort of these destructive habits of thinking. And you have one psychedelic assisted therapy session over the span of several hours. And you have people who have been on antidepressants for 20 years, suddenly not needing antidepressants anymore. You have people who have had traumas or fears and and suddenly they, they walk away essentially almost cured. I mean, this is an absolute game changer for the field of mental health and, and for drugs. And I think probably a lot of the drug companies are afraid of this being so successful because they know it can absolutely gut their revenue because people won't need to take pills every single day. They can have a transformative experience and change their life. But again, it it goes back to the way in which we use drugs. And Pollen brings this up in in this sort of op-ed in the Times that, you know, alcohol and, and tobacco are legal substances even though tobacco kills people from cancers and things, and alcohol kills people. And yet, we've decided to accept these substances into our society knowing that a small portion of people will become addicted or will will somehow destroy them, but the vast majority of us can use these to enhance our life. And he brings up how we've sort of ritualized uh, or come up with these sort of social uh, norms in order to use these. We recognize that drinking is best done with company. It's best done at night. It's best done oftentimes while eating all these types of things. We don't drink and drive. We have all of these ritualized forms. Whereas if someone's drinking in the day and drinking alone and getting behind the wheels that we realize that that person has they've violated the social norm, they've become an addict, they need help, right? And so we develop these things. The same thing happens with use of psychedelics, use of marijuana, things like that, is that set and setting matter for how you use drugs. And perhaps this is how we'll begin to fold these into society and create sort of new norms. And Pollen talks about how indigenous cultures around the world have always had these types of norms set up. They have peyote and tobacco ceremonies and things like that, where if you're going to use a psychedelic or use some sort of harder substance, it's with an intention involved. And you are in a group setting. There's usually a guide or a shaman or somebody to look over it. And these are done... Uh, to have some sort of purpose, but also in a community setting around people you love. And And I remember always hearing this about, say, doing mushrooms, that if you're going to do a psychedelic, it's with friends, it's with people you trust, it's in an environment that you're comfortable in, so on and so forth. And I've had some of the most transformative, most amazing, and this is just recreational, experiences... With psilocybin mushrooms, completely changed my view of myself, of reality, uh, and I think it's made me a better person. And that's why I'm such a proponent of it. And so this needs to be the new discussion moving forward is ending the war on drugs and what is society going to look like coming out of this? How can we make these substances and all drugs, even the hard ones, how can we do this in a way that accepts them as a a fact of life, accepts that people are going to use drugs. Some people won't, some people will, and a very small, small portion will bond with these substances in a destructive manner. How do we prevent that from happening? How do we deal with it as it does happen in a smarter way? How do we create a healthier society? And how do we actually then also use substances that can enhance our life The same way that caffeine enhances mine every day, how can we do this with other drugs? And that is, uh, and prevent people from overdosing, prevent people from dying, prevent people from going to prison um, for things that, that they shouldn't be going to prison for. How do we build a healthier society, but one that uses drugs to its benefit and not to its detriment? And that is the discussion to have with your friends and family and that's something to keep your eyes out for is is the unraveling of this and have a think about it until next time